0: there's a couple of hurdles in really hearing this passage. Although I have to say, Seth and Liam reading it this morning, I was following right along with rapt attention. Nonetheless, I think there's a couple of hurdles, and one of them is that it's familiar. The sort of familiar that often causes me to just kind of stop listening and don't necessarily intentionally choose to, but it just sort of happens. And second, it's quaint. The body part stuff lends itself well to vacation Bible school with preschoolers or people jumping up in the crowd with their body parts. And before you know it, you've kind of zoned out, thinking you already know what it says, and/or it's so elementary as to be uninteresting. So I'm tempted to phone it in and preach a sermon that we've probably all heard at one point or another—a sermon in which I celebrate the many and varied gifts of our community. It's a good sermon, and you've heard it. (laughs) And how the anonymous plunger of toilets is as important as the preacher, or let's face it, more important. It would be a feel-good, affirming sort of message, but I've been convinced this week that it's not the heart of what Paul's communicating to the church at Corinth about what it means to be the body of Christ in the world, and it's not the most salient thing that we can overhear from this ancient letter written to a community that's not our own. However, before carrying on, I can't resist a couple of shout-outs that will be egregiously incomprehensive. We had our first meeting of the Joint Councils this past week with the leadership of our new Congregational Chair, Rebecca Allen. Thanks be to God! What joy! I am grateful for the years of service in that role from Bob, and I am glad that we can now fully and formally release him into the sacred work of caring for Linda and their family. And pending congregational approval at our November congregational meeting, Samuel Dahlien has agreed to serve as our next treasurer. Thanks be to God! Especially shouts from the back from Cal. (laughs) I am grateful for extended years of faithful and thoughtful service in that role from Cal. And in a more behind-the-scenes style, this week I was going to the photocopier printer, and I know someone had printed out the schedule of our coffee makers, and I looked over that list, and I did indeed say a little prayer of gratitude for each one of you. Thanks be for the makers of our coffee, yes? And for our teachers of Children's Sunday School and the coordinators of Quilting Days, as we are working on 50 Comforters created to be donated to Mennonite Central Committee in honor of our 50 years as a church. See, I couldn't totally resist that sermon. (laughs) It is important for us to know as we hear this passage, however, that Paul is completely unoriginal in using a body metaphor. The body was a commonly used metaphor for society in the Greco-Roman world. Paul and Paul's audience would have been very familiar with this concept of being a body together. That part wasn't new. Roman orators would appeal to body metaphors to persuade their audiences that inequality is necessary for the peaceful, unified working of the empire. So the body would have been a familiar metaphor and it would have been a used as a familiar tool for propping up hierarchy and subduing the masses yes you are important of course you're important you're just not as important as some other parts like the head thank you nancy it's just more critical that you know your place in the body that you stay in your place and that's how the whole thing works Now, in this chapter, chapter 12, Paul's oration about the body is convoluted. I endured reading several commentators who were going verse by verse, and in some cases, word by word, trying to track Paul's line of thinking from start to finish and his use of this metaphor from step to step. It is, by all accounts, a bit of a mess. But however it tracks, step by step, his intent and his message is very clear. He is, once again, upending Complicating and problematizing the empire's message about the body. There are so many status words in this chapter, it's like you're swimming in them, words describing the relative status of one part to another. And each of these status words is unique and yet related. In English, the variety of these status words can be translated into and are translated into. Lacking, weaker, shameful, esteemed, necessary and unnecessary, presentable and unpresentable, honorable and abundantly honorable and dishonorable, beautiful, ugly, misshapen. It's like um, Paul is a college student consulting a thesaurus. <laughs> and using every single status word available to him in his language. So what is really clear is that Paul is addressing status. And furthermore, Paul is completely turning conventional notions of status on their heads and inside down and upside over and 180 degrees and blah. However he can upset the fruit basket of Greco-Roman notions of hierarchy in the body, he does so. The world's telling you that you're a body, and everyone must stay in their place. But I'm telling you that as the church, you are the body. You're not just any body. You're the body of Christ, where everything you have learned about status need not apply, where the hierarchy waters that you swim in will be drained away. Paul's body metaphor is far from quaint, as it can first appear where I sit. It's actually pretty earth-shatteringly subversive in ways that have been lost in translation, given that whole reading someone else's mail from 2,000 years ago and a million miles away thing. Paul is clear that the Holy Spirit is manifest in each one of us. Now sometimes he refers to the gifts of the Spirit, and we hear that language a couple of times in this chapter But far more often, Paul refers to manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being manifest in us. Paul is also clear that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in each of us is unique and that the Spirit's manifestation in each of us is uniquely vital to the whole. There isn't a more important spiritual gift and a less important. Holy Spirit is manifest. That manifestation is unique. And that manifestation is uniquely vital to the whole. As one commentator wrote on this passage, diversity, not uniformity, is the characteristic of the Spirit's activity. How do you know when the Holy Spirit's at work? Diversity, not uniformity. In fact, Paul reserves his harshest critique for those within the church community who have made the definition of spiritual maturity in their own image. (laughs) It seems there are some in the Corinthian church who think themselves the most spiritually mature of them all, who have made a project of sorts of bringing others into spiritual maturity. But that maturity is defined by the particular and unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And just as Paul is seeking to upend The status strata that the empire around them is imposing, he's also seeking to upend that stratification that's happening even in the community of faith. Diversity, not uniformity, is a characteristic of the Spirit's activity. Now, later, and when the pastors looked at this passage earlier this week, we noted this, later, Paul slips back into those hierarchical ways when he writes, so, after this whole body thing where he's upending everything, he says, God has appointed first, blah, 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 second, blah, 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 third, blah, 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 and then, and then, and then. It seems as though he is slipping right back into a hierarchy. And those hierarchical waters that we swim in are hard to escape. I think this temptation back into status thinking and ordering proves Paul's fallibility. There's lots of proofs of that, of course. And it demonstrates just how impossibly hard it is to imagine, much less live, in non hierarchical community. He's already slipping back into it within just a few words. How hard it is to imagine, much less live, in non hierarchical, no, bleh, can't even say it, non hierarchical community where the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in each is equally honored. Another thing that is absolutely clear in Paul's letter to the Corinthians is that he's calling them to be family to one another. And we see it in this chapter, but we see it really throughout. One of the most obvious signals of this is his prolific use of brothers in the letter. And the NRSV helpfully adds sisters. And as we grow in awareness of the limitations of the gender binary, we would add siblings or kin He uses this word, though, this familial word, more than 50 times in the seven authentic letters of Paul. But the call to be family goes beyond just that familial address. It's throughout. But Paul didn't simply convert individuals to the way of Jesus, he created and he nurtured and supported through these letters and in other ways, visits, communities. That was Paul. The collective, and not so much the individual, was Paul's passion. One of Paul's most prominent themes uh, for the church, or is the church, whose life together is in Christ. And he uses that phrase, in Christ, even more than he uses brothers in his letters. It's more than a hundred times in the seven letters And almost always when Paul is referring to life in Christ, he's referring to it communally. This is about a body. So while Paul subverts and reclaims that body metaphor, takes it from the empire and subverts it for the church, the body is still really clearly a metaphor. But Paul's call to be family is significantly less metaphorical one gets the impression that he thinks the church should actually be family. Not just be like a family, but be family. Chosen family, non-biological family, but family all the same. And not just in that metaphorical sense, but in a real sense. So, What does that mean to be family in a real sense? What does it mean to Paul? It seems that Paul is calling the church to a greater sense of obligation toward one another. And this is one of those words that I think makes us go, Obligation. He wants to see the church, though, not just offer charity to one another, but to feel an obligation to share both spiritual and material resources to share our unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and to share our bread and our money and our homes. The sense of familial obligation seems essential to Paul given the economically stratified community and class divisions that are unique to the church at Corinth. Of all the communities that Paul is in correspondence with, It's the church at Corinth that has the greatest economic disparity within the community itself. And so Paul is addressing that very specific dynamic. And his vision seems to be in the creation of a church that is family for one another. That takes care of one another like family. Shows up for Thanksgiving meal with the annoying uncle and the terrible political ideas of the cousin. And shows up. To be family for one another. Paul's vision seems to be in the creation of church as a share community in which material resources were shared just as freely as those spiritual resources. And one way that Chicago Community Mennonite Church attempted to live this was in assembling what we called a community of goods and services in which we listed things, we had this grand master list, listed things that we owned as households that we were willing to share, like lawnmowers and power tools and all kinds of other things that not everyone might own on their own. And we also listed shareable knowledge that we had or services that we could provide, things that we would make available communally. And um, if this a passion in any one of you and you want to take on something similar here you can talk to me and may I have a first crack at someone's knife sharpener <laughs> I don't want to buy one <laughs> in the conclusion of this chapter that Paul, Paul writes but strive for the greater gifts and I will show you a more excellent way there's clearly echoes here of the way of Jesus. And also, that excellent way is leading right into chapter 13, which is a very familiar one to many of us, often called the love chapter. Not to be confused with the love boat. The love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, regularly read at weddings. But Paul, as you all well know by this point, is not writing this letter to an infatuated couple about to join their lives together in matrimonial bliss. He's not writing this to a couple about to be married. He's writing to a fledgling church community figuring out how to follow Jesus together and how to live with one another in the midst of their very prosperous urban home and the love that Paul so memorably describes isn't sentimental and isn't saccharine. It's that more excellent way that he's calling the church as body, as family, too. It's a good and a challenging word for living together as a church, as a non-hierarchical body. How do we even do that? As a share community, as a family. So may we, too, hear this good and challenging word as we seek to live together in our own prosperous urban home as church, as followers of Jesus, as a non-hierarchical body, as a family who shares generously of the unique manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our lives and who shares generously of our material resources. May it be so, here, everywhere. Amen.